everyone. Hello. Hello, everyone. Hello. <laughs> I'm just going to say everything you say in a yeah. more chipper tone. I love that. Welcome to Check Your Threading. Mm. So as you probably already know, every two weeks, Lauren and I watch a movie, we do a little research, and then we create this podcast called Check Your Threading, where we look at the history and the philosophy and the theory and all sorts of other good stuff revolving around the film. I'm Bonnie. Hey, Bonnie. Hey. Hey. Uh, I like candles. Lately, I've been really into sour ale and uh, seltzer. I'm always into seltzer. Nice. You should hear the burps that happen that we have to edit out. Mm, yes. And I'm, I'm Lauren. And I am glad that it's finally springtime in Boston, uh, although by the time you listen to this, it will not be anymore. I have more decorative pins than I have places to put them, and I like bees. Mm, I love it. Surprise! Surprise! We have a surprise podcast because we're doing them actually once every two weeks, not twice a month. So we have Attack the Block, our last sci-fi for sci-fi month. It's a 2011 British science fiction comedy horror film um, written and directed by Joe Cornish and starring John Boyega, Jodie Whittaker, and Nick Frost. Uh, so the film centers on a teenage street gang who have to defend themselves from predatory aliens on a council estate in South London, specifically Brixton, I think, on Guy Fox Night. It's all totally normal things to say in the same sentence. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So with a movie called Attack the Block, you obviously have to explain what the block is. Mm. So I looked into the history of public housing in the UK, which, like in the US, is kind of complicated and politically fraught. Mm -hmm. So please accept this disclaimer as I skim over some very high-level ideas. Okay. Basically, the idea of public housing uh, was to support the poor, middle class, or post-war folks who needed housing support. Um, one of the biggest construction booms for public housing was post-World War II, uh, when almost 4 million British homes... Uh, had been destroyed from bombing or damaged in bombing. Uh, so it made sense to build densely and to build up to accommodate the more than 4 million people who needed housing. So if you assume that each one of those probably had at least two people in it, we're talking about a lot of displaced folks. The problem is that like most things built 70 years ago, the mechanisms that managed these places and, you know, kept them up has changed significantly. Over time, these places sort of became self-fulfilling slums. So the people who could afford to move away did, and the people who couldn't got trapped. And the lack of an integrated economic class eventually turned these places into like black holes of urban blight by the 70s. Uh, just to be 100% explicit here, I'm blaming this on the government's mismanagement of the policy, not on the residents. Mm -hmm. So as we see in Attack the Block, there's a ton of what you would call, quote, fingers, respectable folks living in the block. But there's also the stereotypes of, you know, drugs and crime and hoodlums running amok, uh, all the things that can permeate a public housing system that is not given uh, proper support structures. Mm. So Moses, Moses and, the, and the kids, the gang, aren't just defending their homes. They're defending the concept of the block itself their reputation for living in it and like straddling the line of wanting to be tough, but also hating people who automatically stereotype them as villains. Yeah, uh, I love yeah. that. So wait, so 
are you saying that the the block that they're in was probably built directly post-war then? Maybe not directly post-war. Um, so the interesting thing is that it started, the boom started post-war, but it stretched for a couple of decades because uh, the government was hiring all these up-and-coming architects to build housing projects. So all this like really intense architectural brightness went into building housing projects for a while. The problem was that by the time we got to the end of those 30 years, they got distracted, were more interested in building like high-rise apartments, money was going into other places. Um, and then another 40 years later, we're at 2011 and things haven't been touched since the 70s. Everything is just falling apart. Do you know what kind of architecture it is? I don't. Okay, no worries. Sorry. That's okay. I I always, I'm curious about that. Yeah. So it's interesting, especially because like, I did not think about the element of the war causing a housing need in a very different way than we saw a housing boom in the, in the fifties and people having all these, like, you know, all this money to spend in these housing subsidies and like the, the great American dream postage stamp house. Um, London was going in a very different direction. I think you definitely see the permanence that they're going for, especially in the block that they chose for this movie. Like it is built like a fortress. It's built like a concrete block uh, that doesn't make it particularly inviting. But I do think that to a certain extent, they were trying to counteract a cultural fear of fragility in their housing. The other thing I was thinking of with that is like you were saying, when you're on the block and you don't have the money to get out of the block, you stay on the block. And that kind of architecture that you're talking about drives home the permanence of the person having to stay where they are, you know? Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. Even down to like, you know, one of the first jokes in the movie is that the elevator won't work very well. And I, it's just, it's all those little things about like, well, this, this place, it's been probably two generations since its heyday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But to get a little more contemporary to the film, I wanted to talk about the London riots of 2011. Do you remember the London riots? There's I, there's a lot of stuff I remember about them, but it's so far out of context. Sure, sure. You know, sure. all I remember is that they happened. Okay. So in 2011, three months after this movie came out, in England, uh, London had five days of rioting. Now, I'm, there are many, many layered causes for this riot, which are nuanced and people still debate about what specifically should be considered, you know, the most, most important factors. And like all riots, the reasons that people were rioting on day five were different than what lit the fuse on day one. But it kicked off when the police murdered an unarmed black man named Mark Duggan. So there's also political unrest. There's huge unemployment in the youth population. There's racial tension. And there's what's described as a double punch economic recession. So it was just a powder keg in 2011 in London. So what's important in this, of course, is that the creators of Attack the Block are aware of this as they're making the movie. Not of the riots, because the riots happen afterward. But all of those elements that built towards those riots were there in 2010 when this movie was being made. Mm -hmm. uh, they can feel this tension building in their city. They placed the movie in a very specific neighborhood in London. It seems, like you said, pretty agreed upon that this is Brixton, um, which is you know currently considered a pretty low class area, a predominantly black area. And they're aware that this is something that they can use to resonate with their audience. The heroes of the block, Moses and his gang, are very much the same people who were just simmering and ready to riot in 2011. And when Moses talks about maybe the government sent the beasts to kill black boys, 
that's three months before a 29-year-old unarmed black man is shot by the police. Mm. There's a reason that no one on the block ever wants to call the cops when, like, I think the nurse suggests it more than once. Um, this is an atmosphere that's already been sort of set by the real world. Yeah. So. Yeah. So this is the block that we're defending. It's it's not a particularly nice place to live, but it's our place to live. Right. And no one's allowed to take that away from us. All right. So I'm going to kind of go into, as far as Attack the Block, the film itself, one thing I learned, the director had this really high concept idea and he had like basically no budget. He was talking about how he was inspired by early low budget filmmaking. So like some of his favorite directors, such as Steven Spielberg or James Cameron, he was inspired by the fact that they were trying to make these big movies even when they couldn't. It's really weird to think about James Cameron as a low budget filmmaker, but I see where you're coming from. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. I think he did really well with what he had. So I was thinking a lot about the invasion genre when it comes to this film. Okay. So okay. alien life forms started to appear in the movies in the 50s. Okay. In B movies like Plan 9 from Outer Space or The Blob. Mm-hmm. Body Snatchers. Was that in there too? Yes. So Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the classic Cold War paranoia film. So in Britain in the 50s, their space invaders didn't focus on the Red Scare, mm -hmm. but instead focused on their continued struggle after World War II. So he talks about quarter, the Quartermass series, which is a British television science fiction serial from the 50s. Peter Hutchings wrote in an essay in Liquid Metal, Britain as a nation is still bound to the experience of the Second World War. Okay. Direct quote from the essay, this manifests itself in a number of ways in the Quartermass series. Examples include the workers at the alien factory in Quartermass 2, who seem to have been transplanted directly from a morale-boosting Second World War film and whose social club contains a poster boasting the warlike slogan, secrets mean sealed lips. Oh, interesting. Okay. The concern with wartime unexploded bombs in Quartermass and the Pit, as well as the way in which the destruction visited upon London at the conclusion of that story very clearly reenacts the Blitz. Interesting. But it's also funny because at the beginning of this article, he mentions for an empire that basically overtook nations upon nations, yeah. like... The idea of space invasion is kind of ironic in a way. It's interesting because I really do feel like in a certain way, World War I and World War II were the first time in a, in a very long history that the citizens of Britain felt significantly threatened. So I can understand why that would have long lasting implications in the way that they you know, structured their society and their pop culture for the next 50 years. Yeah. So moving ahead in time to, you know, the 2000s, we have the UK, Britain specifically, in 2007, um, the Sun newspaper has coined a term, broken Britain, mm. which is a term that's used in the Sun and also by the Conservative Party to describe a perceived widespread state of social decay in the United Kingdom. So the alleged broken Britain is where Moses and his crew live, and it's also where this film takes place, right? Okay. 
Yeah. So while this film is an action-packed, badass thrill ride, (laughs) um, there is also a social conscience to it. They're below the surface, you know? Definitely. We, We open on Moses and crew mugging Sam. Um, but as the story progresses, we see their vulnerability and like flashes of humor, right? And like throwaway moments. We see those in Biggs's mom is absolutely ruthless in trying to get him home by 10 p.m. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he basically has to bargain and bribe his way out of his curfew. Uh-huh, yeah. Like Jerome loves his dog and it's yes. his turn to walk the dog. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, you get a lot of really quick snapshots of family life as they like duck in and out of their apartments grabbing stuff. The director was talking about how he refused to have the boys have guns. They needed other weapons. Uh, Yeah, I actually really, I think I saw the same thing. I love the fact that he only gave a gun to the actual bad guy. Yeah, yeah. It changes everything if you give guns to everyone. Yeah, I literally, I didn't think about it until it was pointed out. And it's like, it's, I'm so grateful that he did it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it says something about their personality, all the different weapons they choose to use. It really says something about their personalities. Every different weapon is a look inside the boy himself. Definitely. Well, I think it's supposed to start out as childish, but honestly, every weapon that is chosen is very practical down to the super soaker filled with, I don't know if it's alcohol or lighter fluid or what yeah it's practical it was it was an intelligent choice okay so there was this article that lauren gave me uh that was called why i love attack the block i think and it was on the british film institute website and dylan cave wrote it so i just want to pull out a quote from that because he said it in a way that i think that is perfect and beautiful so Okay, okay uh here's the quote In a wonderful conceit, it emerges that Attack the Block's aliens are only out to get those who have come into contact with the alien killed at the start. This prompts the film's morality, that actions have consequences, which doesn't entirely convince, but the wider message that these boys are a part of an already ignored underclass is much richer. As Moses says, there are too many things out there out to get me. Get me? The strife and struggles of the film's events are only experienced by an unfortunate few. The entire adventure, including the alien attack, goes largely unnoticed by the rest of society. They only see the damage left behind and subsequently arrest Moses, the teen who has saved them. Yes, absolutely. I have to say something about that. Okay, so one of the biggest moments in the movie for me is at the end when the nurse, Sam, finally asks Moses how old he is. And he's 15. Yes. Yes. He's 15. All of our expectations of young black boys and classifying them as adults when they're still children just like explodes in that moment. And and we still expect him to save the day. He's like, he's the most capable member of the gang, Mm -hmm. but he's 15. I think it's like a great simultaneous scolding of white society's expectations and empowerment of black youth. Like Moses is going to save the day, but like not because you expected of him. I was reading an article and God, I, I will cite it in the website later, yes. but um, I was reading this article written by this person who was like, they had a real intense flash to Tamir Rice. Absolutely. That's, that's completely valid. And I think that that's, that's absolutely the context that I'm talking about this in. Like it's convenient to consider black boys adults sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I loved that quote. It was just a beautifully written 
It's question time. Oh, it's question time. It's question time. Nice. (laughs) Question time is when we ask each other questions that uh, the other person has had no opportunity to prepare for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my first question for you, when we opened this podcast, you read a laundry list of genre adjectives for this movie. Comedy, horror, sci-fi, British, arguably, you know, like teen oriented um, and I guess I wanted, I just want to know like broadly what your opinion is about how important the genre is to this film. <sighs> Always with the hard hitting questions. <laughs> um, I think the only genre that really matters here is sci-fi, right? You know what? I changed that answer. The only genre that matters is that it's comedy sci-fi. The reason I think the comedy matters is because there's actually this whole genre of film about broken Britain Uh that has kind of a very intense gravitas to it. Okay. So Attack the Block is like always on one of the top 10 broken Britain film lists, you know? It's nice to have a comedy on that list, I think. Okay. Right also, on. science fiction, I believe, has gotten a bad rap longer than it's been popularized, right? Mm-hmm. So when you and I were in high school, it was not cool to be a nerd or a geek or totally. anything like that. Like if you totally. liked Star Trek, you were weird and you were going to get, you know, made fun of. Yes. So it's not until recently, thank goodness, that this geek culture thing has become cool and widely accepted. Maybe I'm talking myself out of this. <laughs> Science fiction and horror are great genres to tell stories that if you put them in a traditional drama or even straight comedy, it would be too on the nose. It would be too over the top. Yeah, yeah. So we have this socially conscious film about these boys and their place in the world, the class structure, like it would be too much. Okay. Yeah, totally. I feel like I lost my point, but yeah. Overall, I said no, but now I'm saying yes. Okay. (laughs) All right. Great. (sighs) So, Lauren, what weapon would you have if you were in the crew? That's rough. Okay, so non-gun, obviously. Mm -hmm. Does it have to be one that, like, somebody actually used or just, like, in the theme of? Just within the confines of the rules, you can't have a gun. Okay. Uh, and obviously something that's in my apartment. No, not something that's in your apartment. Oh, okay. Unless you want it to be. Just like, what weapon would you choose? Because they obviously chose their weapons. That's why they're so unique. Yes, that's true. That's, that's a good point. Okay, so here's my problem, is that all my best weapons are close range, but like the reality is that when my adrenaline is up, I want something long range. So I know it's heavy, but I've had this lamp in my family for like at least 35 years like (laughs) before I was born and I stole it from my parents when I moved out and it's a floor lamp and it's iron and it is like unbendable and the top of it I'm looking at it right now the top of it has this pointy part that I think would be really good for stabbing so if I just took the shade off (laughs) I could carry it around and it would give me a good like three or four feet of reach and I think I would be pretty comfortable with something like that also the base is super heavy so it could be stabby or bludgeony Mm -hmm. Um, and I like that kind of versatility in a in a melee weapon I love that 
thank you for the thought-provoking question. <laughs> it was, it's so funny because I know the exact lamp. That lamp, for the record, was broken by a visitor into our apartment, an invader, yeah. if you will. Yeah. That's right. A, a person who was not invited back. That's how strongly I feel about this lamp. Yeah. And it it took us like, what, a year to get it fixed? Yeah. I had to, have, I had to rewire it. That's how I was not going to throw this lamp away. No. She it loves will, that lamp. It will be with me until I die <laughs> or until I kill some aliens, apparently. She'll give it to her cats in her will. That's right. Yeah. There you yeah. Go. Or you, depending. Um, okay. Question two. Talk to me about Bruis. <laughs> okay. Uh I think he's a great addition to the the group. Okay. Okay. Talk tell me why. Lewis <laughs> is like our our rich white I don't belong here. I'm just stopping by for some drugs. Uh fish out of water. Yeah, yeah. So he clearly represents the privilege. Totally. And, um He's trying so hard to be cool. Yes, yes, he is. And we're getting some good comedy out of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He really does. He really is like the, the when things get too serious, we have Bruis. We can yes. always go back to Bruis. Yes, totally. And what I love about this film is that like, it is very serious in certain parts. Definitely. And yet always funny. Yes, well, and it just all the boys taking the shit out of each other. I mean, like, you, you know, uh, John Boyega delivering that line about, like, what if they were sent here to kill black boys? Everyone gives him a moment of silence and then just, like, rips the shit out of him. But we're all left with that concept of, like, what if this is true? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. So John Boyega says, you know, what if they're here to kill black boys? And then Pest says, truth. Okay. Okay. Like, oh, my God. It's okay. Not- yeah. I appreciate, that's a good buffer because then they're laughing at Pest, not yeah. laughing at the very real idea of like racial targeting. Okay. A white boy saying that. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's also <laughs> that. There's also that. <laughs> like stop. A lot of white posturing. Yeah. In yeah. This movie. <laughs> You'll need to watch this movie if you haven't seen it. <laughs> Question two for me. Yes. Do you believe in aliens? Absolutely. Talk more about that. Is there a follow-up question? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I... Um, Carl Sagan, me. So I know that there's two thoughts in the world. One is that if there was an alien life out there, statistically, by now, we would have encountered it. The other perspective is that the universe is so vast that it is impossible for, for there to not be other intelligent life in the world. I prescribe to that second group of people, I am not a scientist, I just like science a lot, and I think that it is far more useful for us to focus our resources on hope than on internal reflective determinism. So I will always be in that second camp, even if we never get our ID4 SETI satellite, it's the end of the world as we know it, crackle. Um, to, to, to be less sound bitey about it, I really think that there is so much more unexplained shit in the universe happening on our planet, just in this one tiny microcosm. Oh my god, yeah. Let alone multiplied by billions of stars. Like, yeah, it just feels statistically and scientifically plausible that there are other living sentient beings in the in the universe. 
there's a certain kind of ignorance and arrogance almost about saying, well, if there was other intelligent life, we already would have found out about it. Would we have though? I know, right? We still have so much shit to do. I mean, I'm sorry. Our planet alone has just barely gotten to the moon. Like we've sent like unmanned spacecraft out further than that, but we just don't have the technology to be able to say that we would have found it by now. Like totally. we, we haven't even gotten outside our own microcosm yet, like you said, you know? Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I think the other thing is that like, no matter how hard we look, if you don't know what you're looking for, you're not going to see it. Mm-hmm. So my favorite kind of sci-fi is the sci-fi that presents us an alien that we weren't expecting or that has broken the rule in some way. And and I like Attack the Block's rules because even though it's very like they lay it out there for you real thick, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that they have this pheromone trail that they're following and they have a system that's reflected in our own um, system of nature. Like, you know, we have Bruce watching the nature documentary about the moths that follow each other's pheromone trails. Um, and then the aliens do that. And I do think that there are repeating patterns in the universe that makes sense because of like evolution and maybe we will see something like that but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to manifest in a way that will be immediately recognizable to us so totally hardcore alien believer the truth is out there clearly bonnie is with me on this one so Mm -hmm. um all right so my my biggest takeaway yes if i may please do I think of this movie as a cross between Akira. Oh, okay. And War of the Worlds. Okay. But with a dash of Stand By Me. Oh, nice. well, yes, of course. Or, or Goonies or any of those like child adventure. Yeah, yeah. What's the baseball one? Sandlot. Sandlot, yeah. 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 Totally. <laughs> solid. That's solid. <laughs> Okay, that's a good takeaway. My takeaway is that I feel like everybody in this movie is like more than what they are, which is a great super basic lesson that I, you know, don't have a problem with every movie broadcasting if that's the direction we're going in. And I just have to say, this is my very petty response to the world at large. So much criticism of this movie is that it's not scary enough. And I want to know who decided how scary it had to be to be worth your time. Because I think this movie is great. I think it's suspenseful. I think it's funny. I think it has good science fiction. And I don't think that it has to literally have you jumping off the couch to be worth watching. So I'm just saying like, like horror is what you make it. And it doesn't have to be like the fact that you can't go to bed after you're done watching it. Allow it. Allow it. Allow it. Thank you. So tell us what's next, Lauren. This is your pick. Oh, okay. Yes. So next week, not next week, next month, we will be focusing on um, movies that are pride oriented because June is pride month in many places. And so we will be watching Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. (gasps) Yes. Yes. Which I look forward to discussing with you very much. Oh my gosh, me too. You want to take us away to the outro? (sighs) So if you like us, please like us, please like us. We like you. You can follow us on Instagram at check your threading or on Twitter at check threading. 
You can also email us with your comments or your questions, your suggestions. If you just want to chit chat or, you know, send us popcorn or whatever, you can do that at checkyourthreadingpod at gmail.com. Yes. You can also find us now on iTunes, Spotify, and anything else that we have will be listed on checkyourthreading.com. Damn straight. So please subscribe if you enjoyed this and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see you in two weeks. See yeah. you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.